From the Canon Institute, this is Isabella Tabarovsky, and this is Russia File. Today we continue our conversation about Russia's relationship with its past, specifically the history of World War II and ways in which Russia's political leaders call upon this past to serve their current political needs. Earlier this year, President Putin published an article titled The Real Lessons of the 75th Anniversary of World War II. The piece came out in The National Interest, an American bimonthly international affairs magazine published by the Center for National Interest, a Washington, D.C. think tank. The article laid out many of the ideas that have become characteristic of Russia's official memory of the war. Its publication gives us a chance to consider something that Americans often have a hard time understanding. Why is so much of Vladimir Putin's attention devoted to the war and the Soviet victory in it? In what ways does this past serve his political interests at home and abroad? What exactly was he trying to achieve with this publication? Why did he choose this particular venue? What messages was he trying to communicate and to whom? To help me unpack all of this today and to fact-check the piece as we do it are two historians, Ivan Kurila and Darius Stola. Ivan Kurila is professor of history and international relations at the European University in St. Petersburg. He is an author of several monographs, including the book History or the Past in the Present and other publications on contemporary uses of the past. Darius Stola is a historian and professor at the Institute for Political Studies at the Polish Academy of Sciences, who served as a director of the Pauline Museum of the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw between 2014 and 2019. He specializes in political and social history of Poland in the 20th century, Polish-Jewish relations and the Holocaust, international migrations, and the history of the communist regime. He has authored six books on these subjects and serves on the boards of several Polish and international journals and institutions dealing with the history and memory of the 20th century. For none of us, it was a surprise that Putin was going to publish an article like this. He promised to write a big historical article for months. Everybody who watches Kremlin's politics of history expected it. But I think what came as a surprise is that it was published in an American publication in English. Why do you think they made this choice? I would add another important thing. The publication was connected with Putin's domestic reforms, with the constitutional amendment and this moving of parade of Victory Day celebration from May to June because of pandemic also coincided with all of that. So the reason, the aim, the goal of this publication, from my understanding, was to get some kind of international recognition, if not full, but to convince international audience, first of all, that uh, Russia is on the right side in this historical battle. And that was important because Putin feels probably felt, at least at that point, vulnerable because of his domestic lame duck situation. And he needed some kind of additional base, additional approval of his position. And that's why it was published. Probably they planned to publish it simultaneously, but the national interest made it earlier than Russian publication came the next day. Darius, what did you think? I see it as a continuation of this lecture in December last year. Actually, I expected a follow-up to continue soon after the lecture, say sometime in February or March, in anticipation of the anniversary of the victory in the Second World War. Clearly, The planned culminating moment was early May with the planned big parade for the victory anniversary. And for obvious reasons, the pandemics complicated the situation. The last Soviet man turned out to be President Lukashenko, the only one who made the parade on the right day. He proved to be the tougher guy than President Putin himself, which is great achievement, I would say. But for an international campaign, there were no proper conditions at that time. So I saw it as suspended. So for me, 
It's just a reloading of the campaign that was intended already in late 2018 with some interesting changes. So comparing the lecture from December with this article, we see some interesting changes. I was curious, who do you think was the intended audience? The selection of this specific publication, it's not the highest profile publication. Why this one? Who do you think he wanted to read it? Well, it is strange place to make this article published. I can say that probably the level of expertise available for President Putin is now not as good as to advise him how to make a choice. It's one idea. I do not know, of course, the real reason. But another thing is that probably President Putin and his advisors consider most of the American media now very partisan, very much leaning towards one or another side in the American domestic battles. And that's why they try to find, they probably they saw the national interest more or less non-partisan, which is maybe doubtful, but it's at least less partisan than the major outlets. And that's probably was an idea. And as for the audience, it's also strange, but probably Putin and his advisors wanted to find somebody in the United States who can accept his ideas or their ideas and uh, wanted to give them some argument if they wanted to make steps toward Russia. And uh, why not the White House itself? Because it's one of the major audience, because President Trump many times repeated that he wants to make better relations with Russia. And why not give him some arguments to substantiate possible rapprochement, which probably Putin is still waiting for? I have a strange way of selecting the potential audience by looking at who is not insulted in this article. But clearly... (laughs) Clearly, all Central Europeans, certainly Ukraine and the Baltic states, because they are objects of insults, really paradoxical that they really wanted to join the Soviet Union, for example. That would surprise practically everybody in the Baltic states, I suppose. Of course, Poland, but also very much Great Britain and France for the appeasement policy in Munich. If the claim is that the real beginning of the Second World War is in Munich, rather than in sometime in summer or September 1939, so the British and the French contribution to the beginning of war is not lesser than Polish contribution to the beginning of the Second World War. However, who is spurred? If you have a look at the description of the partition of Czechoslovakia, there is one important part missing, and this is Hungary. Hungary also benefited from the partition of Czechoslovakia, and it's not mentioned. Second, it is very clear that the Germany was the main agent starting the Second World War, but it's got a relatively lenient description. And otherwise, I don't see many European countries that would be happy with this representation of the beginning of the Second World War that we have here. It's not really clear to me who is the potential audience to be pleased by this article. Let me step in. I think that certainly one of the main reasons for Putin to write this article was this European Parliament decision to recognize Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty, the main cause of the Second World War. And his main argument was to counter all of that. He said that. But what was interesting for me, Putin did not defend Molotov-Ribbentrop. Unlike some of his advisors last year, they defended Molotov-Ribbentrop already. That was a very weird situation. But Putin repeated that Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty was a bad decision, to say the least. But it was not the only decision that led to the Second World War in Munich and other leaders of the pre-war countries also were irresponsible. And that's why the responsibility for the Second World War could not be put separately only on Germany and the Soviet Union. It also was responsibility of others. And they can say that there is something in that position. I can say, well, I do not fully support it, but there is something in that. And that's why Putin 
probably wants to find allies if you speak about Europe, mostly Western European countries. They're ready to share the responsibility. There is a pretty widespread idea that the responsibility for the war cannot be put strictly on Germany. It was everybody's responsibility. The level of responsibility was probably different, but everybody were responsible. And he wants to find allies among those people. And we know at least Germany was very strict. And we've read an article written by a German foreign minister on May 8th about that. This is a German sole responsibility. The war was nobody else's responsibility. It's German responsibility. That's why Putin has at least some allies in the West who can be involved with his allies. And this particular case, in this particular story. I agree that this article is much more sensible than the speeches in December in this more balanced representation of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact. I would say it's a step in the right direction, the recognition that there was something wrong about it and reminding the readers of this decision from the Pierestroika era, maybe not fully to condemn, but to distance new Russia from this decision of the past. However, what holds true is the essential difference between the Munich decisions and the Ribbentrop-Mawatov. The Munich was to maintain the Versailles order. And I think the key to distinguishing between the judgment of the Munich and the judgment of Ribbentrop-Mawatov by Mr. Putin is his understanding of the Versailles order. Clearly, very much like Soviet Union in the 1930s, he's the enemy of the Versailles order. So for those countries that rely on the Versailles order, like including Czechoslovakia, Poland, and other countries that were established as a consequence of the First World War and rely on the European order established at the Paris Peace Conference, there was and there remains an obvious difference in perspective. Let's go back to those meetings that President Putin held last December, where he made those statements that both of you have referenced about Poland's supposed complicity in starting the war. There were some very strongly worded statements that he made in several high-profile meetings. And there was one where he referenced the pre-war Polish ambassador to Nazi Germany in this really crude language, alleging that he was anti-Semitic. There were references to Poland and the Holocaust. And the reason it was so striking is that it kind of came out of the blue. It was a new line of attack with regards to Poland that Russia had never really used before. Russia, of course, has always manipulated the issue of anti-Semitism with regards to its neighbors, especially Ukraine and the Baltics. And it has generally a long history of manipulating this issue in Soviet times during the Cold War. And it seemed like, okay, now that they've come up with it with regards to Poland, that it would be a consistent line of attack going forward. But this article in the National Interest, even though it mentions Poland a lot, it doesn't really have any references to the Holocaust or anti-Semitism. So it's kind of a departure from what we could have expected if we looked at what preceded this piece. So I wonder why you think that is the case. I can only guess that there were two reasons to not put too much interest in the question of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust now as compared to December. First, December was right a few weeks before the anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz camp. I suppose that was a preparation for a similar statement to be made for the anniversary of the liberation of the camp. However, as we know, President Putin didn't make such an aggressive statement when he was in Jerusalem in January. He was the key speaker at this conference, but it seems that the Israeli host somehow persuaded him not to attack too much, especially those who were absent, like Polish President Duda. So in this article, the question of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism is no longer a major topic. It's mentioned, but it's not a major topic. 
And also, I suppose that in late 2018, it was very clear that the position of Poland in terms of narratives of the Holocaust and, and anti-Semitism was very weak because of a rather pathetic legislation from 2018 to restrict some statements on the Second World War, which I myself criticized. So it seems that it's largely forgotten, this legislation. And Poland's position is not as weak. Moreover, it seems that it was not very effective in early 2020. For example, at this conference in Jerusalem, not many people supported President Putin in his position against Poland. So it didn't work. So he just skipped it this time. Can I add something? Go ahead. You know, for, I, I think that for Mr. Putin, there is always at least two audiences, one in the West and the other audience at home, domestic audience. And for the domestic audience, everything that Mr. Putin is saying about the Second World War has some special meaning because he built his uh, like quasi-ideology of his regime on the sacred memory of the Soviet dead in the war. And it's very important for him to portray himself to be a defender of this sacred memory from encroaches from some evil West countries. And Poland, for him, was a representative of these evil Western countries which want to diminish the sacred victims, all these 27 million who died to liberate Europe. And that's why he chose Poland. And sometimes I see, when I see some of the Polish nationalist claims and Putin claims as a response to them, it looks like both sides playing the same game of national pride and national victimhood. And Putin himself portrayed himself as a nationalist defender of the Russian debt, while some of the Polish politicians being offended and respond to his claims sometimes also the way that many Russians will feel offended and Putin uses. So they use mutual emotions for the political reasons. And that's why this domestic audience is very important, not only international one. I would agree that there is a very peculiar mutual benefit resulting out of such international quarrels. Because chauvinist politicians, they are very eager to attack, especially their neighbors. It's not only Polish-Russian relations, but also in Polish-Ukrainian relations or Polish-Israeli relations is that those who would like to have a fight, they are more than happy to hear insulting voices coming from abroad because they confirm what they claim. Then they can respond aggressively. And in this sense, they confirm their perceptions abroad. So there is a mutual benefit in this aggressive memory policies across East European borders. So when Putin was saying all these things back in December, you could also see it reflected on the Russian federal TV channels. And for a moment, it seemed that perhaps Poland was going to become this new public enemy number one in Russian political discourse, that perhaps it was going to replace Ukraine as this kind of all-purpose external enemy because the Ukraine issue had run its course. Was it just a temporary thing or is that still playing out somehow, somewhere in the Russian media space? Actually, I don't feel like that. Well, I am not a TV watcher. I don't know how the TV channel in Russia now portrayed Poland. I do not feel, I do not hear much about Poland in any conversation. I don't think that people are so much concerned about this. And even in the social media, if you look what the Russian Facebook or Russian Vkontakte is discussing, is not Poland at all. Even when the article was published, we had much more immediate problems to discuss, including pandemic, including these constitutional changes, a lot of things which are much more close to us than Poland is. So I don't feel right now that Poland is... Maybe Kremlin wants Poland to be a public enemy, number one, but not. it is not the truth for the contemporary Russia, at least for these last months or weeks. 
So when the article came out, it sounds like what you're saying, there was really actually no discussion of the article at all, or not much. Darius, what about in Poland? It was barely mentioned. There was some coverage, but really very limited, much less than it was in December, January, and quite rightly so, because there was no international resonance to this article. But speaking about potential audiences, some of my German colleagues have received copies of this article from the Russian embassy in Germany, advising them to use it as a teaching material in their classes on 20th century history, which was, I would say, quite surprising for them, that you may have an acting head of state be used as a material. But this is interesting. Either it's a kind of, you know, bureaucratic inertia that Russian diplomatic staff would like to exceed and show how loyal they are in spreading Or maybe it's a part of the campaign. I would like to know if the same was in some other countries or was it just the embassy in Berlin. On the one hand, I'm glad that Poland is not under fire now because we don't have very skilled politicians in charge that could skillfully respond to it, frankly speaking, which they proved six months ago. Polish response was rather poor. On the other hand, I'm rather happy that we are not under fire now. In December, I could not understand why it was so aggressive against Poland because it was really aggressive and the only commensurate political decision to follow such propaganda attack would be like annexing Bialystok to Belarus or something really dramatic, which of course was not in order. So maybe this very anti-Polish tone of the December speeches was just a temporary invention of someone. Or maybe emotional reaction to some. Somebody told him about this resolution of European Parliament and Putin get really emotional and it was first emotional response and half a year later it was already gone. This is possible because Polish deputies in the European Parliament were quite active in bringing it. But, you know, it reminds me so much the attempts to understand decisions back in the communist time that you have to try to understand the psychology of the autocratic governments We have very limited data and we have to guess what the great leader may be feeling about it. Yeah, exactly. We're getting back to the Kremlinology. Yeah, I can just add some some of the discussion that appeared in Russia among political scientists and historians. Historians try to read and understand. Most of the discussants were surprised to see that in some parts of the article, especially in the Baltic states explanation of the joining the USSR, Putin just came back to the very Soviet explanation like a Soviet text book of the 60s or early 70s. And this was very strange because this part of the history is very well researched and why he needed to repeat all very Soviet story about voluntarily and joining of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania to the Soviet Union because it's so outdated. Even And it's not Poland. I mean, there is no immediate reason to offend them and to say... That was one of the strange things about this article. So how did you, how do you explain it? It is very strange. What is your explanation? I do not have an explanation. I have a working hypothesis for it, which is what the scholars of Nazi Germany call anticipatory obedience. I can imagine a historian or a bureaucrat in Aparachik in Moscow who was given an order to prepare something on the Baltic states and thinking, what would please our president and then goes back to a book from the 1960s and 70s and finds out such commentary. I cannot find any rational explanation because no one can accept it. Of course, the boss must hate it. And nobody in the West is ready to accept the annexation from 1940 as the willing decision of the Baltic people. I can say for the American side that 
I think if Putin thought that this would generate a discussion, I think he greatly overestimates the interest of the American audiences in this part of history. To generate a discussion, you actually have to have an emotional investment in something like this. And I don't think people have that in general. Let me follow on this point, because there is really something East European about it. In Eastern Europe, really many people care about the past. Absolutely. And they are ready and willing to react emotionally. Less so in Western Europe and much less in the United States. Okay, now we see that the United States also absorbed about history, but very different one. But yeah, yes. That's <laughs> so, exactly right. Yes, it's about domestic, it's about national history. So much, you know, maybe the Second World War is very much an East European story, also in terms of suffering and destruction. Yes, Mr. Putin is right that the great majority of the German losses were on the Eastern Front, of course. And the great majority of the human losses in the Second World War were in Eastern Europe. So maybe this is why it's so emotional and still vivid in the memory of many people, second, third generation, because few remember it personally. But it was very much a part of the family narratives. There was one more event that is important to reflect on as we try to understand the origins of this article and the thinking that went into it. In late December of last year, a group of historians and foreign policy analysts gathered in the offices of a prominent and well-connected Russian foreign policy journal named Russia in Global Politics. The roundtable was titled Historical Memory, One More Space Where Political Problems Are Solved. The full transcript of the discussion is available online. It's in Russian. What was interesting about the discussion is that you had historians thinking out loud about how to use history for political purposes, essentially for propaganda purposes. Usually historians don't like to do that. Historians like to complicate things, to show the past in all of its complexity. Politicians, on the other hand, seek to simplify, to turn history into black and white political statements. And it was hard not to think back to that round table while reading President Putin's national interest article, because it touched on some of the very same issues, including how to draw attention away from the Soviet role in the start of World War II by reinterpreting the meaning of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, by reinterpreting the meaning of pre-war diplomacy, for example, and other issues. I asked Ivan Kurila if he thought that, in fact, some of the ideas that appear in Putin's piece were a product of that conversation, and if those historians and foreign policy analysts perhaps contributed to the article. Well, I think that you speak about the roundtable organized by Fyodor Lukyanov, yes. and he has some access to Mr. Putin, as far as I see. I don't know exactly where this finding of this roundtable used for the article, but it's possible. I don't uh, think that uh, most of the historians who were invited and participated shared this use of history for propaganda purposes. And if you see the list of the participants, there were decent historians and some people who I would probably refer as a propagandist and not historians. The publication of this roundtable produced some negative impact among historians in Russia on the one hand, and some of the participants then tried to rehabilitate themselves and made public their views of what happened. But on the other hand, just to see the other side, I would say that it was partially, at least some of the participants explained it uh, like that. Okay, you see that people in the United States, professors and uh, scholars sometimes do the work for a government. They are helping government to achieve political goals. There is nothing better than that. 
And if history just became politics and international politics and history became a political tool, why we should not use our skills and our knowledge of history to help the state to make this historical politics straight? I personally would not probably participate in this, but I can just get some explanation like that and say, okay, some of the more conservative or more state-leaning historians maybe can do it, as long as their views are not distorted and their historical knowledge not used in a way that historians would not agree after that. Darius, what's your take on this philosophical question? I have heard some fragmentary information about this Russian conference, so I don't know the details. But clearly there is something Central East European about the crossroads of politics and memory. Not so much history, but rather memory. And I prefer to call it memory policy and memory politics rather than history politics. It's either history or politics, frankly speaking. And I see that there are some roots of this tendency that are surprising, namely the Polish opposition of the 1980s was massively deploying counter-narratives on the past to delegitimize the Communist Party rule. And the opposition won it. At the end of the 1980s, the Communist Party was really very weak historically. They had a number of topics they couldn't talk, like the Katyn massacre and so on. They could no longer control the new media at that time, like the video. So there is a tradition which it is not just a communist tradition. There are several routes to these policies. And there is, moreover, a very modern and coming from the West set of ideas, which is postmodern approach to history. That there is no such thing as historical truths. There are just narratives. If there are narratives, let's be patriotic and deploy good narratives about our country or about our government. So, you know, by small steps, you can really slip into serving lies if you begin with the relativism, which was not unpopular in the 1990s. There is something else that I find to be really interesting about the way President Putin talks about the history of World War II. He talks about it as if he's in search of some singular, one and all historical truth about those events. The assumption seems to be that once we find it, once we find this singular historical truth, then all of our questions would be answered and Russia's story and Russia's narrative will certainly be vindicated. And how do we discover this truth? We discover it by finding some crucial missing archival documents and it's the lack of these documents that separates us from this truth. So President Putin kind of presents himself as a warrior on a mission to find this ultimate historical truth about World War II. What are we really talking about here? First of all, on some level, there is a big truth and something which not be challenged, like the facts, the facts of Holocaust, of huge massacre in France and different places and the invasions and all of that is just a fact, facts which cannot be denied. But if you speak about the narratives, as Professor Stoller said, the narratives already change it. If you look back how the Second World War was described back in the, say, 50s or even in the 40s, everywhere. It was mostly about the military battles, about the German attempts to invade everybody and to win an imperialistic Germany that want to conquer the European continent, mostly about that. But by the end of the century, the Holocaust emerged as a major story of the Second World War, and the responsibility for the invasion was less important than the responsibility for genocide. This changed the narrative. And I can predict, or I can say as a historian, that this is not the last and the only narrative of the Second World War possible. 
the new narrative is not make the previous one wrong. It just made the previous one less important for the generation which creates the narrative. And I can imagine that the future generations will produce quite a different narrative, which does not make the Holocaust narrative or invasion narrative wrong, but they maybe will be less contemporary for those people who will create it. And that's how the historical dialogue is developing. And that's how it's possible to reshape the same story with the different, asking the different questions to the past, asking the different historical research questions to what we know and what the historical sources can say us. That's how I imagine. What I see in the story is certain important difference between what I believe to be the understanding of Mr. Putin of history and my understanding or understanding of historians is that the difference between a tendency of having one narrative, one canonical narrative, the truth, which under the communist regime was the one approved by the Politburo and the Ministry of Education, and there was only one. Today, and this is the great sin of liberal democracy, we have a plurality of perspectives. Of course, we have the shared part of our narratives, and we work very hard to exclude false statements. So historians share the desire to be reliable, to apply critical methods, but we accept the fact that different people have different perspectives which are not mutually exclusive. So this tendency of having one narrative is also the tendency of controlling this one narrative. I was really smiling when reading the sections of the article when President Putin was calling for the opening of the archives. Now, I have never worked in the Russian archives, but what I know from my colleagues, Russian archives are the least accessible in all of Eastern Europe. So, you know, Poland, the Baltic States, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Romania, even Ukraine, the access to the archives is easier than in Russia, less restricted. In Poland, I cannot remember a single archival collection from the Second World War period which is not accessible and easy to anyone. So, I really don't know what is the intention of making a big step in opening the archives unless he was speaking about Russia. Because I don't know any German archives that are closed. I don't know any Czech or Slovak or Polish archives. It's really very interesting. And maybe even you can tell us what's behind this point about the archives. Putin wrote about British archives. And there are some archival files which are still closed in the United Kingdom. And that's uh, yes. probably somebody told that uh, to Putin and he included it. Into... Well, the situation with Russian archives... The people who study this story say it's actually getting better, but of course, compare it to Eastern Europe, well, all the archives were open almost the next day after the collapse of the communist regimes. The situation in Russia is much more complex, I would say, and there are much more restrictions. Still, people say it's getting better for somehow, contrary to what we could expect. Probably some of the advisors convinced Mr. Putin or those who can make a decision that it would be better if the archives will be gradually open then to keep it secret forever. So it's getting better, but I agree that compared to the other Eastern European countries, the Russian archives are still restricted, I would say. At least some of the portions of the archives, some of the most interesting for the people who study that history, is still restricted. Well, I would also add to this idea of getting to the only narrative. Yes, it's very ahistorical, I would say, that any historian knows that there is a variety of the narratives and how our historical knowledge develops as we are producing and asking another question and producing a new stories, new narratives, I would say, about the historical events and to keep one strict narrative of the Second World War is just impossible if the state wants to do it. But there is an interesting detail. There is a difference between 
between politicians and historians. For politicians, there is no actually border, untransferable border between the historical sources and the myth. What they need is to provoke emotions and to get any support for the political actions. And they get those emotions from the history and they get it from the myth. And they actually, if there is not enough emotions from history, they easily go to myth and inflate emotions using this mythical enemies or victimhood or whatever. So for politicians, there is no such a thing as a historical truth as we historians do understand it. And this is how it's manipulated all the time, almost all the time. I cannot agree more with you because we see similar tendency in, in Poland for exploiting the past. And by the way, it seems that we in Eastern Europe are in avant-garde and Americans are joining now with very powerful emotions. So welcome to the club. But there is an interesting difference because in the 1990s, there were many references to the past, especially in international relations or inter-ethnic relations. But then the past was used to build reconciliation, build peace, build mutual understanding. So it was also a memory policy, but with very different dynamics, the dynamics of decreasing tensions. And sometime, it was sometime between 2001 and 2010 in Poland, probably about the Smolensk plane crash, that there was a shift from the constructive dialogical uses of the past into much more warrior-type memory politics. I wanted to ask you, first of all, before we wrap up, if there is something else in the article that you think needs correcting, was there some glaring factual inaccuracies or interpretations that really do not ring true that we haven't yet touched upon? I would like to go back to this comparison between the Munich Treaty and the ribbentrop molotov Pact. Well, of course, I don't like the Munich Treaty. It was a very bad decision. The whole idea of appeasement didn't work. It gave Hitler the Czechoslovak industry, the gold of the Czechoslovak National Bank. It gave him an excellent strategic position to attack Poland soon afterwards. However, the decisions of the French and British leaders were to keep peace, at least for some time. Why? The ribbentrop molotov Pact was to open the door for war. It was to let Hitler start what Stalin believed to be the second imperialist war, the war between imperialists in the Western Front, which actually, yes, it started. It destroyed the Versailles order in Europe, but a horrible cost, also a horrible cost to the Soviet Union. I would probably say, we did mention that, and I still think this is important, that one of the goals of the article, as I understand it, is to reaffirm Russia's place in the contemporary world. Because for Putin, it was important that Russia was among the victors in the Second World War. The place of Russia in the United Nations Security Council was uh, a result of the end of the Second World War. And it was important for him to remind the world, remind the world leaders that Russia has a right, the right of the victor probably, to be among the world leaders. And it's also coincided with Putin's suggestion to have a special meeting, special summit of the permanent members of the United National Security Council to kind of rewrite international rules, something which he fighting for for quite a while already. And that was one of the goals of the article, as Putin see it. And that's, well, as a Russian citizen, I would say it would be good if Russia keep its position in the worldwide. But 
I don't think that these arguments are convincing enough in the contemporary world. And I would say that the very fact that Mr. Putin needs to go back to the events of the 1930s and 1940s to reaffirm Russia's position in the contemporary world says something bad about the contemporary Russian politics. There is nothing new, no new achievement, no new base for the claims of the Russian elevated position in the world affairs. The last elevated position Russia had was under, sorry, but with Joseph Stalin in 1945. That's a very pity situation. And this publication actually reaffirmed this failure of the Russian foreign policy during the last decades. And that's a pity thing for me as a Russian citizen. As a neighbor of Russia, let me surprise you with agreeing with Mr. Putin on one point. Namely, this insistence on the Security Council is for me insistence on multilateral international politics. So this is where I can agree with him. Yes, I think one of the great achievements of the Second World War was the long-term building of a process of multilateral politics, which saved us from the nuclear war during the Cold War era, and it saved us from several major wars afterwards, and we now see a world which is really in a state of imbalance, is much more bilateral, and there are powerful actors playing against this multilateralism. So this is where I would like support it. And let me agree with Ivan that I also saw it as a sign of weakness of Russia. But the fact that you have to go back more than 70 years into the past to find out the foundation, but it's not unusual. It seems that returning to the past is a kind of default mode of operation of politicians who don't see a clear vision of the future, which would be clear and attractive to others. And this seems quite widespread globally. That means there is no compelling visions or very little compelling visions of the future would be acceptable to many people in many countries. So the politicians start digging in the past, looking for some positive examples. Well, this is a little bit, I would say, pessimistic to note it, but to end on a positive note, it seems there is a future for historians. There is a future for us. What do you think the Kremlin's next steps might be? Because I don't think that this will be the end of Mr. Putin's attempt to kind of inculcate these ideas in public consciousness, including in the West. Well, it's very hard to predict. I don't expect that the whole policy will change significantly, but the situation for Mr. Putin may change and for Russian elites may change. And I don't know whether the Russian elite will search for enemies in the West to use it domestically, to defend domestic political legitimacy of the regime, or it will be looking for allies in the West to get alliance because of the domestic split. I cannot predict because it can go either way. I saw, especially the December speeches, which I believe that the article is a follow-up of, something really extraordinary. That means I couldn't remember any head of a major European power devoting so much time and attention, actually making a lecture on history. So if you have something unprecedented, it's very difficult to predict what will happen next. This is the nature of unprecedented decisions. But it seems so far that the results were rather limited. So a rational decision would be, if it doesn't pay off, why to continue? Unless there are some other steps, which we don't know yet, that were already planned and will be implemented, whatever happens. This we don't know. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. 
For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Canon Institute, on Facebook at canon.institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash canon.